Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, and a special welcome if you're joining us online from the Bahamas. We have a spiritual retreat, and a few Keystone friends are suffering right now in the sunshine. So if you're tuning in, you should really watch later on demand and go catch the sunshine. Anyway, uh, today we get to continue a series called Six things you should know about the Bible. And it's based on six things that I've picked up while teaching the Bible for over two decades now. And, and they're things that I'm convinced can actually help you read the Bible in the way it was intended to be read. And that, as it turns out, is a really big deal. I mean, we, we've said this so far in the series, but, but if you think about it, the Bible really has been without question the most influential printed document of all time. It shaped the religious belief and practice for millions of people all over the world for thousands of years. But, but here's the thing, kind of the, the heart behind this series. Um, I don't actually think that the Bible is what a lot of people think that it is. And, and here's why I say that. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen. Uh, though the Bible looks like a book, and it does, I've got a few of them on my shelf, it doesn't read like a book because it isn't really a book. And before you head for the car and, and deem me a heretic, let me clarify, uh, the Bible is more like a collection or a small library of 66 different books, uh, kind of bound together, written over 1,500 years by around 40 authors. Uh, authors who were real people living in real places at real times. And, and so consequently, and not surprisingly, their writings were profoundly influenced by the social and the political and the cultural contexts in which they lived and in which they wrote. Um, and as it turns out, keeping that in mind will help you approach reading the books of the Bible with the proper expectations. And, and in this series, what we get to do for six weeks is to kind of unpack uh, a little bit what I mean when I say that. Okay, so now with our time together this weekend, what I want to do is answer another one of those really great questions that one of you asked me after last week's talk. And this is super encouraging to me as a communicator because it means at least one of you was paying attention. That's, you know, we'll, we'll just take the wins when they come. But anyway, obviously before I get to the question, and for the benefit of those of you who weren't with us last week, I need to take a few minutes to catch you up on where we've been. So if that's you... Here we go. Uh, so far in this series, we've been exploring how the Bible is organized around something called covenants. And in the ancient world, a covenant was, was simply an agreement that defined the terms of a relationship. Uh, and we've also noted that the authors of the Bible recorded a few different covenants that at times defined the terms of relationship between a specific group of people and God. Uh, and moreover, uh, and this is pretty cool, I've pointed out that most of us are already familiar with the two most famous covenants in the Bible. Uh, they're called the Old Covenant, and we know it as the Old Testament, and the New Covenant, and we call that the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament outlined, in, as in like in the past, the terms of relationship between God and the people of ancient Israel for 1,500 years or so leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And then the New Testament outlines in a present sense the terms of relationship between God and really the whole world following the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, finally, in the series so far, we've observed that when reading the Bible, it's absolutely imperative to identify the covenant under which the section you're reading was written. Because if you don't, well, 
then it can be incredibly confusing. I mean, and, and we've said it this way uh, for the past few weeks, though all of the Bible was written for you, and I really believe that it was, not all of the Bible was written to you. And so practically what this means is that God's promises to ancient Israel that you find in the Old Testament are not the same as his promises to you, and that God's commands to ancient Israel recorded in the Old Testament are not the same as his commands to you. Uh, in fact, as I was preparing for this series, I found an incredibly helpful quote from a conservative Bible scholar named Wayne Grudem. And uh, Wayne serves as a professor of New Testament uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, and in a book he wrote called Christian Ethics, which I read so you wouldn't have to, you're welcome. Here's what Wayne says about all this. He says, It is important to realize that the authors of the New Testament are not saying that some old covenant laws are no longer binding on Christians. He says, but that the old covenant itself, that entire system of laws that define the relationship with God and his people is no longer in effect. And, and so, now, now to be fair, many of us who grew up in church, and I, I count myself among us, right, um, we didn't understand this reality because when someone gave us a Bible, likely with our name embossed on the cover in gold, anybody with me on this? Yeah. They never explained to us how to read it in the way it was intended to be read. Instead, they probably said something like this. This is God's word. Read it and try to live your life by it. And my, my mom was here for a service, and she's like, yeah, that's kind of what we did for you. Didn't mean to, but that's what we did, right? So this is God's word. Read it and try to live your life by it. And if you're like most kids, you just kind of opened it up somewhere in the middle and started reading. And you realize that this sounds great until you actually try to read it and live your life by it. Have you ever noticed this? Because when you do that, you sort of run headfirst into the reality that well, thankfully, Jesus wouldn't want you to do many of the things you find commanded in the Old Testament. As it turns out, those rules were intended for them then and were never intended for us now. And if something in you is going, wait, 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 that's, that can't be right, let me give you an example. It's one of my favorites. Um, and it's a command that would make even the strictest parent among us nervous. And so the command was given to the people of Israel shortly before they entered the land that God had promised to their ancestors. So here's what God told the people to do. And the first part, if you're a parent, you're totally going to follow this. Okay, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother, and will not listen to them when they discipline him. And all of us who have kids are like, okay, I'm tracking, right? Uh, his, so instructions from the Lord here. His father and mother, what should we do? Shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. Now the gate of the town was where the town's business was conducted. That's where like the town leadership met. That's where uh, you could appeal for, for mercy and there was a judge there. Anyway, you bring the kid there and they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. And then I love this detail. I don't know that it's relevant, but he is a glutton and a drunkard. Maybe. I don't know. But okay, what should we do? Then all of the men of his town are to stone him to death. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, right? Yeah. And like I said, it's really good thing to recognize that this command was never intended for us. And I don't imagine any of you are pushing back on that, right? It was not intended for any of us, especially those of us with sons. Anyway, I, I do have this framed in my kid's bedroom. No, I don't really. I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
the la- I ended our last time together by noting that early Gentile or non-Jewish Christians had clarity on this issue. They knew that these rules weren't for them. And so consequently, when they began to study the Old Testament, they didn't do it because they were interested at all in the Jewish religion. They did it because they were interested in Jesus. In other words, they approached the Old Testament for what it was and really what it is, a record of how through a very special relationship with the nation of Israel, God had prepared the world for his son. Okay, so now that brings me to the question that one of you asked after the teaching last week. And somewhat providentially, it's a question that leads to another one of those things that I really think you should know if you're going to read the Bible as it was intended to be read. And the question, this is my paraphrase, it's not word for word, but it kind of went like this. Do you have to believe that all of the Old Testament stories literally happened in order to follow Jesus? And, and that, that's a great question. Uh, like, if we're honest, there are some pretty incredible stories in the Old Testament. And, and if you grew up in church like I did, then you were probably taught to read every word of the Old Testament literally and historically. And you were probably taught or caught the sense that anyone who didn't do that didn't really believe in the Bible or God or Jesus or any of it. Now, moreover, if you grew up in church like I did, that perspective probably worked for you until the day that someone asked you some version of this question. And for me, it was my obnoxiously overly analytical college roommate, John. He hailed from New York City. Um, and I'll never forget the day when following a visit to a local church where we had heard a sermon that outlined the various types of fish that could have swallowed Jonah and kept him alive for three days, complete with slides, different options, right? He looked at me and he said, I got to ask, how can you possibly believe that all those Old Testament stories actually happened as described? He said, I mean, come on. Do you really believe that a man named Jonah was literally eaten by a fish, survived in its belly for three days, and somehow lived to tell about it? He says, or, while we're on the topic, what about that account that says the sun literally stood still in the sky one day so that ancient Israel could win a battle against their enemies? And he goes like, you've taken physics, you've taken astronomy, you know that if that happened, it would disrupt like everything and pretty much destroy the earth. He says, or, or how about the story of Samson? Yeah, many of you may be familiar with that story, but he said to me, you know, that dude was basically like the Jewish Hercules, okay? And there's no way his life played out the way it's described in the Old Testament. He said, you know, the author of his account says that one day Samson killed a thousand men with the wet jawbone of a donkey. Has to be a wet one, apparently. If it's dry, it would never have worked, right? Yeah, a thousand men with a jawbone. He says, like, how can any intellectually honest person Read some of those Old Testament stories literally. And I remember thinking back then, I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> I mean, like, if there's a God, and I fully believe that there is, then all of those things are certainly possible because anything is possible with God. But see, that day, I didn't say much because, honestly, I didn't know what to say. In fact, I didn't know what to say to answer that question until years later when I enrolled in an introduction to the Old Testament class in seminary. And if you're not a church person, seminary is basically grad school for pastors. But it was in that class that I was introduced to another way to read the Old Testament stories. 
And it's a way that can be very helpful, especially for people who struggle to reconcile some of what they read in the Old Testament with their experience in the world. And as it turns out, it's a way of reading the Old Testament that has deep roots in the Jewish tradition. It's a way that invites us to read the Old Testament literarily before we try to read it literally. And consequently, it's a way that encourages us to sort of look past the unexplainable and seemingly impossible elements in a story in order to consider the message that God was trying to convey to his people through that story. It also allows us to discover why the people of ancient Israel chose to tell and retell these stories to their children for thousands of years. Okay, so now with the rest of our time together today, what I want to do is work through a specific example of, of this principle to approach the story literarily before we approach it literally to illustrate sort of what I mean and what it can unlock for us. And what I want to do specifically is show you how you might approach Jonah a little bit differently if you prioritize that literary approach. So um, let me remind you of how the Jonah story begins. So God comes to a man named Jonah who he had commissioned to be his prophet. So in ancient times, God would appoint certain individuals to be his mouthpiece to deliver his messages to people. And so Jonah had been commissioned as a prophet. God comes to the prophet Jonah and gives him the following instructions. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So when Jonah gets this message from the Lord, we don't know exactly where he was, but odds are he was somewhere in Israel, and we know that because of what comes next. He says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. It says he went down to Joppa, and Joppa is part of the modern city Tel Aviv. So if you fly to Israel, uh, you land in Joppa or Tel Aviv. So Jonah went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, so now it's easy for us to miss, but you should know that when Jonah decided to run from God, he really ran. I, I brought a map I found on the internet, and I continue to be so thankful for Al Gore inventing it for us all. So when we need stuff like this, we can find it easily, right? But after receiving his instructions from God, Jonah goes to Joppa and gets on a boat and sails in the direction of Tarshish, which is a city some 2,500 miles to the west. And if he were to have followed God's instructions and made the journey to Nineveh, he would have had to travel 550 miles to the northeast by land. In other words, Jonah ran as far as he could in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Honestly, from the perspective of the ancient world, he bought a ticket to the end of the world. Like, people just didn't go past Tarshish. And so his message to God really couldn't have been any more clear. I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. Now, if you think about it, without any other context, this is a really strange way for a narrative about a Jewish prophet to begin. I mean, the Jewish prophet's full-time job was to deliver messages from God to people. And so 
why would a prophet disobey God so dramatically? And that is the question that we should be asking. And I want to hold on to that for a moment because um, we're going to come back to it. But, but for now, we've reached the point in the story that's sort of the most famous part of the Jonah story. And you probably know how it goes. Basically, the boat transporting Jonah encounters this terrible storm that threatens to sink the boat. And the sailors cry out to their respective gods to be rescued. And that doesn't work. And so then they do something that they would do in ancient times. They did something called casting lots, which is basically rolling dice. And they believed that the gods could intervene and the dice could then tell them, you know, what the problem was or what to do about the storm. And pretty much when they cast the lots, everything pointed to Jonah. So they're rolling the dice and then everybody looks at Jonah and they ask him, what did you do? Because this is becoming a matter of life and death. And Jonah tells them what he did. And in response to this information, the sailors, well, they took Jonah and threw him overboard. <laughs> and, it, and it worked, by the way. And the raging sea grew calm. So just imagine Jonah is just sort of floating there in the Mediterranean, probably contemplating his decisions, right? Uh, but that's not where the story ends because the author tells us now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so now it's at this point that the whole it's much more important to read the Old Testament literarily than literally thing really comes into play. Because if you prioritize a literary reading, then instead of spending a lot of time arguing about which species of fish might have eaten Jonah or whether it would have even been biologically possible for him to survive for three days in the belly of a large aquatic creature, you'd begin by asking, what message was God trying to deliver to ancient Israel through the Jonah story or history, or whatever it is. And as it turns out, if you go into the Jewish scholars' writings, they will tell you with pretty much one voice that the point of the Jonah narrative has nothing to do with a man being eaten by a fish. Instead, they would tell you that the Jonah story contains a message sent by God to correct his chosen people who had lost their sense of calling Said another way, they forgot who they were, and they had forgotten what they were doing here. And here's what I mean by that. Many generations before the time of Jonah, God had commissioned the people of Israel to be his representatives in the world. In other words, he desired to show the world what he was like by the way that they lived and loved and served. Uh, they were called to be a light in the darkness, a city on a hill, a kingdom of priests, and a holy or set-apart nation. They were supposed to be a people who had been blessed by God in order to be a blessing in the world. But see, in Jonah's day, around 700 years before the time of Jesus, the nation of Israel had dramatically drifted from that mission. Uh, instead of demonstrating compassion for people who knew nothing of God and who were living in profound darkness... They had become so offended by them that they had developed hatred and resentment towards them. They wanted nothing to do with them. And to the people of ancient Israel at this point in history, nobody was farther from God. Nobody was less deserving of his mercy than the people who lived in the city of Nineveh. The very people to whom God had desired to send Jonah. And that's why when God asked Jonah to deliver a message warning them to turn away from their sins, Jonah runs 
in the other direction. Like the people of ancient Israel at that time, Jonah didn't want to be associated with the work of God in the world if that work involved extending compassion to unworthy people. And so Jonah runs, and he becomes the most famous runaway in history. And he learns the hard way that running away from the God who created the heavens and the earth and the oceans and everything in them really isn't possible anyway. So as the story continues, uh, the author tells us that Jonah is vomited out of the fish. I love that. That's literally how the Hebrew verb uh, can be translated. And then he travels hundreds of miles to the city of Nineveh to deliver God's message. So he would have walked for weeks and thought about his story so far and where it was going to go. But at that point, Jonah was steadfast. He was going to deliver the message that God wanted him to deliver. And so he walks through the gates of this ancient city and delivers the message. And when he does, the people of Nineveh, well, they do the unthinkable. And the author described it this way. He said, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So they dress in this clothing that says to everyone that they're in a period of mourning and a period of repentance. They stop eating. It says, and then it goes, it goes on. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, so cities back then had kings, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. It was a move of incredible humility. Take off all of the royal vestments and to mourn with the people, to deliver to, to, and cry out to God to say, we're turning from our sins. Please don't destroy us. He goes on. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything and do not let them eat or drink. So someone had to tell all the cows, no eating or drinking for a while. Right? Yeah. He says, but... Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And then I love this. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In other words, the king of Nineveh says we need to do everything that we can possibly do to demonstrate, physically demonstrate to this God that we're willing to turn from our evil ways. All right, so now what happens next is absolutely incredible, if not entirely surprising. Because here's what the author tells us. He says, when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And, and okay, so just note this. If the story ended here, it would be a pretty great story, right? Like God sent Jonah, Jonah said no. God gives Jonah a second chance. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches against the city. The people turn from their sins. And Jonah would feel thankful to be a part of God's incredible work of mercy and compassion, right? Like in that scenario, Jonah might even say something like, you know, God showed incredible compassion to me and the fish. And God showed incredible compassion to the people of Nineveh. Praise be to God. And the moral to that story is that God is compassionate to all people. But see, honestly, that's not the point of the Jonah story, even though it's true. In fact, as the story continues, Jonah actually confesses the reason that he ran from God in the first place. And he confesses it 
to God, who I think probably already knew, but it was still nice to verbalize it, right? And as it turns out, Jonah didn't run from God because he was afraid of the Ninevites or what they would do to him. He ran because he was afraid of what God would do for the Ninevites. Like seriously, he hated the Ninevites because they were wicked and they were violent and they did evil things. And to be fair to Jonah, they were wicked and violent people who did evil things. They were the enemies of Israel. And honestly, at that point in history, everything they were doing was working against the way God wanted things to be in the world. So in a sense, they were God's enemies too. But see, Jonah knew something about God, and he didn't like this piece. He knew that God would respond positively to the repentance of the Ninevites because that's not only what God does, it's who he is. And so the author describes Jonah's response to God's mercy for us. He writes that to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became very angry. In other words, Jonah is furious with God, kind of like, how dare you? Because he doesn't agree with God's willingness to honor the repentance of the Ninevites. In essence, in this moment, Jonah essentially says to God, you've done the wrong thing. Like, these people have sinned, and they deserve to pay for their sin. Like, kind of, if you want me to summarize it for you, God, it should be compassion for us and judgment for them, right? Compassion, mercy for us, destruction for them. And so Jonah challenged God. Here, here's what he says next. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This was why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. In other words, God, this is why I ran away. I knew you were going to do this. I knew that if I warned them and if they took me seriously and turned away from their sins, you'd forgive them. Because that's who you are. And in this moment, jo Jonah doesn't like that piece of who God is. Now, now, now check out this next verse. It records what Jonah understood about God 750 years before Jesus' death on the cross. And this is absolutely stunning. Check this out. Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I'm telling you, that verse encapsulates the theme of the book of Jonah. Like Jonah acknowledges here that God doesn't want to punish unless he absolutely has to. Because, and this is so, so critical for us to understand, God's punishment is always redemptive. Like a good parent, he's always in the business of attempting to rescue and to reconcile with his wayward children. Again, that's right at the heart of who he is. He's a God whose grace is so big that people have trouble getting outside of it. Moreover, and this is key, he wants his people to take the message of who he is to the darkest corners of the world. In ancient times, even to places like Nineveh. And here's what's so fascinating. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus like I am, I mean, we're reading this story from thousands of years ago and God's instructions to ancient Israel to show the world what he's like through the way they live and love and serve. But we have the same calling as followers of Jesus. 
In fact, in the letter to early Christians, one of Jesus' first followers, a guy named Peter, he says to Christians, you are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are set apart on purpose for a purpose. You are on a mission to carry who God is to the darkest corners of your world. In fact, one day, Jesus basically tells his followers to storm the gates of hell. To Jonah, that was Nineveh. To us today, it looks like all sorts of different things. But, but God wants his people, then and now, to take the message of who he is to the darkest corners of our world. And that's the message that the children of Israel are to take from Jonah's story. And that's why for generations they've been telling and retelling Jonah's story to their children. See, in the end, the Jonah narrative isn't really at all about a man eaten by a fish. It's about God's heart for the world and it's much easier to see that. It's much easier not to lose sight of that if you prioritize the reading of the Jonah narrative literarily because then you don't get tripped up on the fish. And so now just, just so we're clear and to head off a few emails, um, I'm not suggesting that the events of Jonah's life didn't literally happen. And neither was my professor. In fact, my joke is someday I'd like to have coffee with him in heaven. I hope there's Starbucks, Right? And we can talk about the fish thing, right? Rather, I think back then my, my professor was simply suggesting, and this is our big idea for today, at times it's more important or more helpful to read the Old Testament literarily than literally, especially if you're someone or you have a son or a daughter who, who really doesn't read the Old Testament at all because they struggle to reconcile the details in the story with their experience of life. I guess what I'm trying to say is that instead of trying to prove the unprovable or discount the impossible, we should approach the Old Testament stories in order to determine what they have to teach us about a whole bunch of really important things. Things like hope and love and pain and loss and forgiveness and betrayal and compassion, and mission, and calling. And the God who is at work in the midst of it all. And that, my friends, is the fourth thing that I really think you should know about the Bible if you seek to read it as it was intended to be read. And we'll pick it up there next week. Uh, but for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. And once again this week, if you've joined us and you just, you'd like to talk to someone, pray with someone, we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left right after, um, right after I dismiss us and we'd love to spend some time with you. But uh, let me close our time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this ancient account and thank you for the way that as we read it, it reads us. We want to be a people who have a profound respect for your story and for our history. And so I pray that as we, as we seek to, for some of us, maybe read the Old Testament again or maybe for some of us for the first time, I pray that we would see the wonder that you intersected with our world to deliver a message of love 
and hope and peace that you prepared the world for the day that love and peace and hope came down from heaven in bodily form in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death on the cross. Thank you for the new covenant in his blood. Thank you for his resurrection and the hope it gives us for life after this life. It is in his name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you back next week for part five.